Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the Pop Up Chinese Studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined via Skype from the other side of the planet by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well indeed, Kaiser. How are you? I, I'm I'm great, man. You know, it's it's a lovely day. We had that just ridiculous sandstorm yesterday, and uh, it's uh, gorgeous today. We had like a. a I saw I saw photographs you posted. Suddenly there was a, a beautiful Beijing blue sky. Right. Are you missing Beijing yet? Oh, you know, totally. I I, I I sometimes think of of the dust in my nose, and I just feel <laughs> the most terrible, <laughs> terrible nostalgia. <laughs> so, so yeah. last fall in November, we had as a guest on our show Evan Feigenbaum. You remember that one, Jeremy? Indeed. Uh, so Evan served as a diplomat in Asia for many years. He's now vice chairman, I think, of the Paulson Institute. Uh, we were talking about the APEC meeting in Beijing, speaking of APEC Blue. And among the many topics that came up, Evan uh, was talking about some of the new regional economic initiatives that China was pushing, like this new Silk Road and, of course, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB. And few of us back then had really heard much about the AIIB prior to you know that fall until um, the U.S. You know, first wanted to keep it off the agenda at APEC and then tried to dissuade Australia and South Korea from joining, uh, something that Evan thought, and he made pretty clear, was a mistake. Now, today, nobody who even casually follows China is unfamiliar with AIIB, especially after George Osborne, the U.K.'s Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced that London would pony up and join the new investment bank as a founding member. So as application deadline for founding membership drew near Germany, France, Italy, they all signed on as well. And actually, so did South Korea uh, and that other initial country that the U.S. was hoping to dissuade Australia. Uh, at the time that we were recording, I think it's now 57 countries who have come on board as founding members. So um, is this AIIB episode going to be seen by future historians as some major inflection point in China's economic rise? Is it going to be truly impactful in addressing infrastructure needs in the region, or is it going to be merely symbolic? Uh, I mean, like people like Kishore Mahbani have um, rather breathlessly described it as epical. Um, but, you know, there's been a more kind of modest uh, claim made by Li Keqiang recently in an uh, interview that he did with the FT where he said it was just going to be a compliment to the existing international financial system. Um, so you know, and uh, there are other voices such as uh, Michael Pettis. Right, uh, he had a great quote. He's quite an influential commentator who wrote a long, long piece, as is his habit, called yeah. "Will the AIIB One Day Matter," right. uh, which kind of gives away what he thinks. Right, uh, well, and he uh, says, or will it? And I suspect he thinks this way. Will it join the long list of much hyped initiatives aimed at transforming the global trading regime, but that now languish in obscurity, known? primarily for absorbing university graduates from very prestigious schools who have failed their other job interviews. <laughs> uh, so with us here in the studio to discuss these and many other questions about AIB is Trey McCarvey, a London-based consultant who writes the excellent China Politics Weekly newsletter, tracking the movements of China's PBSC members and offering comment on the major events of the day. Uh, welcome to Seneca, Trey. Yeah, thank you. Very, very happy to be here. And uh, actually, my surname is McArver, not McCarvey. So. I'm sorry. Why did I? <laughs> That's I, all right. I have it rookie mistake. Yeah, rookie mistake. McCarver, McCarver, right. Um, and then um, joining us remotely from Shanghai is Simon Robinistein. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Rubinovich, uh, who is Shanghai-based correspondent for The Economist, formerly of The Financial Times. And, and first time on Seneca for you, huh? Simon, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Kaiser. It's, it's great to be finally on your show. And I got to uh, just send out a quick shout out to uh, two of your loyal listeners, namely uh, Mom and Dad. Hope you guys are doing well back in Ottawa. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. <laughs> great. Um, 
I didn't know you were from Ottawa. Yeah, I try. I try to keep it under. Yeah, wrap. you should. You should keep that as you. Don't tell anybody. That's, that's embarrassing. Uh, okay. Anyway, let's jump right in here. And uh, I think that uh, Jeremy, you wanted to kind of lead discussion on this topic. It's you know a, a favorite of yours. So why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, Simon, I think the the first thing I'd like to, uh, I mean, China watchers probably are all familiar with this, but I think this is one of the things where people talk a lot about something that we're not necessarily clear on what it is. So what exactly is the AIIB? Um, and what do similar institutions that already exist, development banks, uh, uh, what do they actually do? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess to start with the, the, the very basics, uh, it's, a, it's a multilateral development bank. Uh, it's obviously been, been led by China. It will be led by China. Uh, it's got lots of members. The members are all uh, other sovereign nations. I think as Kaiser mentioned, there's 57 at the moment. Uh, and each of the members will, will basically pitch in a bit of money as capital contributions. Uh, and the goal for the AIB is to have a capital base of somewhere between 50 to $100 billion dollars. Um, given how many people, how many countries they've been able to sign up, it will probably be towards the $100 billion end. Um, to give you a sense of how that compares, uh, the Asian Development Bank has a capital base of about $160 billion. Mm -hmm. um, the World Bank's is, uh, is somewhere in the ballpark of $230 billion. Uh, and then the idea with the development banks is that they use that money uh, to lend out to uh, other countries uh, for development needs to basically fill in some of the gaps that have been left behind the market. Um, so they provide both financial but also um, technical assistance, uh, and it's in support of, of development projects, basically things that private lenders um, don't want to fund because they're seen as too long-term, uh, in some cases too risky, uh, or just not lucrative enough. Mm -hmm. So Trey, I've got a quick question for you. Uh, the opening to this, the 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 the, uh, the opening for China to to create such an institution at all came because there were uh, reforms that had been proposed to the existing Bretton Woods institutions to to the World Bank, the IMF. I I, I can't remember which specifically they were for, which of these two, but uh, and they stalled in in the American uh, Senate. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you're right on. There were. Uh and, you know, somebody should fact check this, but, you know, I, it was 2009, uh, China, you know, the second largest economy in the world, but voting rights that are less than 5% in the IMF and the World Bank. And so uh, a bill was, was proposed in the United States to reform the voting system uh, and the shareholding system within the IMF and the World Bank. And Congress, as, as it so often does these days, uh, failed to pass the bill. So, um, you know, I think the AIB is, you know, it is in part a response to um, what China sees as a, a U.S.-led system that, you know, is refusing to adapt to its growing economic and political uh, role in the world. Right. <clears throat> so, Simon, um, I mean, maybe we can have a look at then, you know, what are the American objections to it? I mean, why why did they try so hard to kind of stump the Chinese on this uh, exactly. initiative? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the stated objection um, and, and the one that America was, was pushing when it was trying to lobby its allies not to join uh, the bank uh, is that they're worried about Chinese lending standards. Uh, we've seen China make a bit of a mess of its lending uh, via China Development Bank uh, in some parts of Africa, some parts of Latin America. Um, and, and the fear is that, you know, China doesn't have sufficiently high corporate governance standards. 
um, that it won't respect environmental standards or labor standards. Uh, and, and so that's been the stated objection. Um, I think that we can be uh, quite skeptical in, in, in viewing that objection because the fact is that in trying to create this sort of multilateral lender, China has been very clear that it wants to adhere to the higher standards uh, that it sees the World Bank um, uh, being able to apply. Uh, and given that the AIIB be placed under such an incredible microscope, um, you know, it really will be in China's interest to, to adhere to those sorts of standards. So, so I think the stated objection isn't really the true one. I, I think that the, the real valid objection, the unstated objection, is that this is the first regional development lender, lender that has been created outside of the Bretton Woods uh, framework of institutions, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, those are seen as, as part and parcel of America's diplomacy, uh, economic diplomacy, but also political. Um, the AIB won't change the status quo, but it's the beginning of creating a more China-centric framework for global economic governance. And you know, little by little, it begins to chip away at both American prestige and also American power. Great. So in some ways, it's just a matter of, of, of pride, could you say? Is this just the petty paroxysms of a, of a, a power in its twilight? Is it, I mean, is, we're, surely we wouldn't, you know, wouldn't expect behavior like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it is because, you know, this is this is not unprecedented. I mean, we had the development of the Asian Development Bank, which was because Japan, you know, and the, wanted a greater role um, in uh, in in the financial architecture of East Asia. Then you had the Inter-American Development Bank, um, which was kind of pushed by Brazil, uh, I think, in the in the 60s or the 70s. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's actually it's not unnatural for China who, you know, um, who does not have a very big say in the Asian Development Bank, which is run by Japan and mm -hmm. the United States primarily um, to be pushing for an initiative like this. So I think, you know, the the U.S. You know, the U.S. reaction um, it has, has been overwrought. Well. Right, right. Uh, you know, they're, 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 you, this did not have to be seen as a challenge to the kind of Bretton Woods system. Instead, you know, I think the U.S. could have approached this and said, oh, that's great. Let's bring this in. You know, let's make sure that this has the same standards. Let's cooperate with this. We want to be, you know, a founding member. And then this would become a complement to the, the, you know, uh, the MDB system that we have already created. Um, but I think you know, because the U.S. chose to, you know, be so um, forthrightly <laughs> opposed to this, it, it then it, it's then created this 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 feeling that that, you know, I mean, it's it's funny, but the U.S. I think has actually, you know, created the exactly the narrative that they would have wished to avoid. Jer Jeremy, are you sensing that in, in the States where you are right now? Anyone talking um, about it at all? A lot of people talking about this in Nashville. Not at all, not at all. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things I'm finding in the U.S. is that even, for example, NPR, National Public Radio, which is the news organ of choice for the latte-sipping bi-coastal elites and the, the, the cosmopolitan types <laughs> of America, is so little international news that this barely registers with most people. Um, 
So, you know, there's half an hour of news about Hillary Clinton eating a burrito <laughs> um, and not a lot of uh, news about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so, well, well, no. So, Simon, though, you've just confessed to us that you're actually not an American. You're from Ottawa. <laughs> and so uh, you're in a position to talk about, you know, what, what has, has this been a, a debacle? Has this been a real, you know, has this been damaging to the American inter- image internationally? I mean, Trey suggested that uh, this is actually a, a it's actually creating the very narrative that that uh, that the U.S. hoped to avoid. Uh, would you agree with that? And and what do you think of what this has done to the American image? Well, I think just to uh, jump back really quickly on on two points. Uh, firstly, in terms of whether or not people are aware of it on the ground here. Uh, you know, not to do the foreign correspondent thing and quote a taxi driver, but I, I was a bit surprised yesterday taking a taxi here in Shanghai to have the driver ask me what I thought about the Yatohang. Um, so I can't say that all Lao Baixin are aware of it, but <laughs> some of them are. So, certainly those sophisticated uh, Shanghai cab drivers. <laughs> exactly. The Shanghai Cosmopolitans uh, know a bit more apparently than the NPR latte-sipping Cosmopolitans. Um, <laughs> the, the, the question that was raised earlier about whether this is just a question of pride I don't think we would have seen American opposition being quite so fierce if it really was just an issue of pride. I, I think it is more important than that. It is strategic. It is about power. Um, the AIB by itself is is not going to change the way the global economy operates, but it does set a precedent. Uh, and over time, China will be able to uh, develop more credibility in the region uh, and potentially develop more institutions that will begin to shift the balance of power away from Bretton Woods towards maybe rival institutions. So so it is important. Uh, I wouldn't say it's apocryphal, but I know in, in a few decades' time, we could well look back at this as a very important uh, uh, turning point. Um, so you know, as far as the American opposition to it, I, I think that it has been a mistake. I think it's been a tactical mistake in, in that if you look at the short-term you know, they've not been able to stop AIB from, from developing this big head of uh, steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also strategically, if you look at it longer term, you know, it's it's clear that China's economy is becoming a lot more powerful and that China wants to have a voice that's uh, commensurate to its economic power. Uh, and I think the right approach for America is that it's it's described before of, of trying to bring China into existing institutions, trying to make it a responsible stakeholder and, and the sort of opposition that we saw towards the end of last year, uh, if anything, pushes China away from that. So uh, that's your recommendation. If you had Obama's ear right now, you would tell him, "Look, um, let's 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 resurrect what what Zelik said, and uh, you know, bring China into these institutions so that it doesn't go making more." What about Trey? What, what do you would you would you agree? With that's well, I, w- I wanted to say something else, uh, but that talking of a responsible speaking of a responsible stakeholder. Um, I mean, first of all, hopefully we haven't jettisoned that idea. And I think, in fact, you know, you've always seen um, the U.S. continue to push this idea of China needs to pull more weight in the international system. And and you had, um, you know, you had Obama chastise the Chinese for free riding That's right. on, on the Americans. And I thought, uh, you know, the the Xi Jinping had a, had a brilliant kind of retort to this in his next big speech. He said, we invite our neighboring countries or the countries of, of Asia and, and Eurasia to free ride on our economic development. So, mm-hmm. so, 
you know, I think that's there's a real disconnect there, where which is which is why I think you know the U.S. has made a, a big, uh, both tactical and perhaps in the long run strategic error here in in opposing this so strongly, because um, here you have China, <clears throat> China finally stepping up um, and saying, okay, we're going. We're going to. Um, He's about to cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really know what that is. Um, yeah, people get emotional on this. Show. Yeah, it's okay. yeah, exactly. Um, but um, and yeah, and and so I think the U.S. response being so um, so just blatantly kind of confrontational uh-huh, is, uh-huh. is is really kind of gives uh, uh, gives gives pay pays lie gives lie to right. to this uh, this. To that whole rhetoric, you know, brought out by Zelik in 2005 of being a responsible stakeholder and instead makes the U.S. look that it, you know, it does see China in fundamentally competitive terms. Jeremy, let's talk about some of the reactions that we've seen to this. Um, um, you, you brought up Michael Pettis's very, very long, well, typically long piece. I don't think he's ever written anything less than 3,000 words. I think, you know, his text messages, well, <laughs> that's why he's not on Twitter anyway. Uh, what, what did you think of that piece, Jeremy? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, um, it's worth reading if you're interested in the details. Um, but I suppose uh, the title really does sum it up. I mean, his question is: uh, This seems like big news, but isn't this just a, you know, just one more thing that isn't going to be that significant in the end? Um, and I, I think it's worth pairing with something that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, whose author I forget, but um, which is called China Steps Back, uh, which essentially argues that the bank is evidence of China's failed policy of bilateralism, meaning that China now has to, in fact, engage in sort of multilateral institutions uh, because diplomatically and politically just dealing one-on-one with countries has been a failure for various reasons. So, I mean, I think these are arguments that... Um, this thing isn't as important as people are making it out to be. And I'd like to ask Simon if you think that is a, a valid way of looking at this. I, I think it's true that, you know, a development lender with a capital base of 50 to $100 billion is, is not going to change the face of the globe. Right. Um, so, so, you know, p- purely on the basis of that, I, I think that we, we are at risk of exaggerating its importance. But in terms of its symbolism, uh, in terms of what it it means for China's credibility and prestige in the region, and also as a sign of the sorts of uh, uh, multilateral diplomacy that China is going to try to lead now, I I do think it is important. It is an important moment. Um, For the Michael Pettis argument, um, you know, does does the will the AIB one day matter? And first of all, I, I agree with you about, about him being a little bit over length in general. I think he's a, he's a brilliant man, but he's in need of an equally brilliant uh, editor. Um, <laughs> the, the piece is interesting, but he didn't really get that much actually into the nuts and bolts of the AIB. He talked more about will the RMB one day be a reserve uh, currency, which is a, a related but a separate issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is important to look at it, though, because the AIB by itself will not make the RMB a reserve currency, but it is possible to envisage uh, China using the RMB to denominate some of the loans that it issues uh, under the AIB. Um, And so it it is one more stepping stone uh, in in promoting the RMB's acceptance. So I I think it's 
it's really part of a broader trend. And uh, for China, it's it's obviously a very important uh, jumping off point. And for America, I guess they viewed it as if they could stop this one point, it would set back China's uh, overall uh, diplomatic strategy by, by a number of years. So clearly that, that has not happened. Right. So um, what will this bank actually do? What type of projects is it going to finance? Trey? So I think historically, um, you know, the the purpose of of these development banks has been to fund um, long term infrastructure projects that tend to have a a um, uh, a long period before they have returns. So the private sector tends not to be willing to take on risk of funding something that you might not see a return for twenty, thirty years. So I think that's exactly what we're going to see in Asia and uh, or, or with the AIB and. You know, everybody's quoting this this ADB statistic that came out in 2010 that said that uh, this region is going to need eight trillion dollars worth of infrastructure investment over the next decade, and um, so I don't think there's any shortage of projects. Um, so I know uh, what I've heard through the kind of rumor mill is that they already have a couple of projects teed up, and one is going to be. Um, a hydroelectric plant, and the other is going in, in to Pakistan, be an right? highway. Um, in Pakistan, is that correct? Um, That's I, what I'm hearing. I don't know. Well, I'm I'm not. I heard this. You know, this was spoken in confidence, so I'm not going to. Uh, okay. I'm not going to talk about that. But um, interesting. So in, I mean, in you, neighboring countries, are you hearing anything about uh, what some of the initial projects that that might have been already teed up might be? I'm afraid I don't actually have any information on that. I'm now I'm now in Shanghai, so I'm I'm uh, at a decent remove from the Beijing uh, rumor mill. I'm afraid, um, <laughs> but I, I I would just I mean Trey's absolutely right about you know long term financing or infrastructure. Um, the, the fact is that when you look around Asia, the Asian Development Bank, one of its core competencies is lending for infrastructure. Um, so even though they are making very nice in public. Uh, the fact is the AIIB really is a direct challenge to the ADB. It's not like China has, has discovered that there's this need for infrastructure financing. Uh, and so one argument is that, well, why don't you just give more money to the ADB, the existing institutions, um, to support infrastructure projects? The response to that is that actually China had tried to do so. It's, it's tried to give the ADB additional capital, uh, but Japan and also the United States have been very reluctant to have that happen because were that to happen, China would then be expected to have more of a voting share within the institution, which they weren't willing to give it. Right. Um, so it gets back to the point that, you know, sure, there is a lot of need for infrastructure financing. Uh, and so, you know, the AIB funds will, will be very welcome and won't necessarily uh, be directly challenging the ADB's funds. Uh, but in terms of the institution and China's power, uh, it, it, it is a direct challenge. So, is there a, an explicit tie between the AIIB and uh, Xi Jinping's uh, Belt and Road policy, oh, I which is uh, a, 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 I guess, to to sum up, seems to be a Chinese initiative to build up infrastructure, maritime and uh, transport in infrastructure to connect China uh, to the rest of the world, like the Silk Road used to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if there's an explicit tie, but. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't see them uh, as implicitly tied. And, you know, I think it's important in that respect to remember that the AIB was first mentioned on Xi's visit to Indonesia. 
in, I think it was October 2013, which is when he announced uh, the 21st century maritime Silk Road. Um, so, uh, you know, I think... Yeah, it'd be hard not to see them as, as implicitly tied. Exactly. Right. And in the same way, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that the Silk Road Infrastructure Fund has been, you know, but it's obviously all part of the, the kind of same overarching strategy. Simon, you would agree with that? And, yeah, absolutely. And ju- just to add to that, in fact, I mean, the, you had mentioned the New York Times piece about whether this is China stepping back from doing a unilateral lending because of the problems that it's had with that. I mean, really, it's it's doing both. And if you look at the Silk Road Fund, it still is very much a unilateral initiative. So China clearly has a vast amount of forex, uh, foreign exchange reserves to, to spread around. Uh, in the past, it relied too heavily on one or two institutions, especially China Development Bank. It, it's now very wisely hedging its bet, creating a range of different institutions. Uh, but it's not stepping back from the lateral initiatives. I think it's using these multilateral initiatives to buttress what it's doing unilaterally. Trey? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think, I, I think that New York Times piece is, is kind of misses the point saying that it's the failed policy. It's actually just an expansion. You know, this is this is a, a complement to the bilateral diplomacy that's going on. And it's, it's indicative of a larger shift within China's foreign policy, which Xi Jinping laid out in late November of focusing on um, regional diplomacy and making that China's top priority. So, um, you know, I think you can see all of these things as, as part of a piece of a larger strategy to engage with the region and um, try, try to increase China's uh, clout there. So, guys, we talked about the uh, United States and Japan having effectively excluded China from, from the participation that it really wanted in ADB and, of course, in, uh, in other institutions. Uh, there was an, there's another economic institution uh, that's underway, an American initiative called TPP. And uh, China was kind of deliberately excluded from that. Uh, could, would I be wrong in reading this as sort of a, a, a response to that or repost to to that snub? I, I don't think it's a direct response to, to TPP. Uh, the, the Chinese response to the TPP is, is something called the RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, mm-hmm. uh, which is meant to be another uh, mouthful of letters uh, and is it, it, it meant to be another... Uh, Regional economic uh, agreement, which is a little bit softer in terms of what it's pushing for than the TPP. I, I think the TPP is an interesting example because it, it's clear in its design. The one thing that stands out about it is the fact that you're trying to build a free trade zone involving Asia, and you've not included the biggest trading nation in Asia, uh, not to mention the world, uh, in China. Um, but I think that the U.S. has actually been a little bit more clever in the way that it diplomatically approached the TPP in that it's said to China, and China has, has said back that at some point China may well join the TPP. So um, we're nearing the end of our, of our time here, but I, I wanted to ask just sort of a, a general question. So 100 years from now, are historians looking back at this, are they going to see this as an inflection point? That I, I think so. That's something that I've, I've been wanting to say. Uh, I think going back to Simon's point about that, you know, actually the AIB is not practically, it doesn't, you know, it's capitalization of a hundred billion at most, you know, it's not, it's not really a big player and, and it's not going to on the ground. It doesn't mean many things, but I think it's import is symbolic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it in itself is an inflection point, but I think, you know, what we've seen is, is um, how this played out seems to be. Well, and there, there've been a raft of different, it's more that we are, are in the middle of, of a larger trend. So I don't know if you remember, 
you know, and and this kind of goes back to Simon talking about the the U.S. Congress uh, in October of 2013, we had APEC in Indonesia. Obama was not there because the government shut down. And the story then, but you know, the story then was like, is this an inflection point? Because Xi Jinping then became the star of APEC. He, had, you know, it was his first APEC as Chinese president, and everybody talked about the waning influence of the U.S. in the region, the lack of engagement, and the rise of China. And so I think, you know... Two years later with, right. With, you know, I think the AIB is kind of another, it's more of a proof point on kind of the relative rise of China in the region and the relative decline of the U.S. in the region. So, um, you know, I think we'll see it as, as one part of that larger trend when we look back, but not necessarily as the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back or the, the critical uh, juncture. And turning to you, Simon Rubinovich. Hi. At, at, you know, at the risk of being uh, a little bit boring, because Trey and I have been agreeing a lot, again, I'm going <laughs> to agree with him on, on that view of things. There is a, a deeper uh, issue here, which is that as China rises, as it begins to build institutions through which it's able to uh, have more say, to project its power, is, is it also projecting a different vision of the economy of global governance and at least looking at the at what we know about the AIB so far it's not a radically different vision mm-hmm. it really is trying to sign up to the same kind of approach the same kind of principles uh, that the world bank is is already uh, trying to promote um, so it, it, you know it is conceivable that in 100 years time we will look back and china will have actually been able to arrogate a lot more power to itself um, but at least in the economic domain in terms of the kinds of economic policies it's trying to promote, the, the kind of system it's trying to uh, uh, you know, sell to the rest of the world, it's not actually going to be radically different from what we have today. Great. Um, let's um, now wrap that and move to the section of our show where we make recommendations. And um, I'm, I'm happy to be able to, 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 to ask Jeremy to start us off again. Don't you dare steal another recommendation from me, man. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully this isn't uh, going to steal it from you. I'm going to recommend a website. The URL is nickstember.com, uh, and it's a website all about uh, Chinese comics, uh, manhua, uh, uh, comic-style illustrations, both contemporary and historic. Can you read the name of the, the name of it again? The URL is nickstember. Dot com. It's a name, I think. Nick, uh, Mr. S-T-E-M-B-E-R? Nick S-T-E-M-B-E-R. Okay. Um, and uh, everything from uh, cartoons to the wonderful 20th century, should have been cultural giant Feng Zakai, uh, who was uh, uh, one of the most yes. interesting uh, writers and illustrators of uh, 20th century China. Great recommendation, man. That's, that's, that's a great one. Trey, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I don't know. Is it is it okay to pimp myself a little bit? No. Okay. So, sure, uh, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. First, for for listeners that have not uh, are not aware, uh, there is a, a newsletter which I write called China Politics Weekly that you should all sign up for. It's um, it's free and it's available at chinapoliticsweekly.com. Um, so now, self promotion over. Um, I think related to our talk today, um, there's a very interesting interview. It's actually not terribly interesting, but there is an interview with Jean Li Chuan, um, who is the, um, right now he's the head of the interim secretariat of the AIB. Um, everybody assumes that he will be head of the AIB um, once the articles of agreement are finalized. 
Um, there's an article, there's an interview with him on the BBC from 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you'll find him to be an incredibly articulate um, and uh, yeah, articulate proponent of of China and its its. Uh, you mean articulate for a Chinese man, right? That's what you really mean. That's code, right? No, I'm just no, no, no. That's that's actually not what I mean. I think um, he is an articulate. You're articulate for a Chinese man, Kaiser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's. Um, it's you know I think he puts a little bit of a face to to um, to what China's doing and to the AIB um, and um, and if I can give one more recommendation um, there is uh, another free newsletter uh, called U.S. China Week that was uh, done by a friend of mine named Graham Webster that is now I think he's finished all his beta versions and he is now launching it officially but it's it's a really good quick rundown. Uh, with some quick analysis of some of the key events in the U.S.-China relationship for the week. So I also encourage people to to check that out. Great. Thanks. Simon, what do you have for us? Uh, well, th- that's a lot of weighty reading material, so I'll, I'll give you guys a lighter recommendation, yeah, which is uh, you should follow, uh, I believe the name is pronounced Matt Stopra. He's the, uh, the, the BuzzFeed journalist who I wrote that great story uh, a week or two ago about how his iPhone was stolen, and then he found that uh, this guy who was uh, in China taking yeah. photos, Orange, we called Bro Orange, Orange yeah. had the phone, and he yeah. tracked him down. Well, Bro Orange has now arrived in, in New York for a reunion with Matt there. Um, <laughs> so his, uh, his Twitter feed over the last 24 hours has been very funny with Bro Orange going around and loading up on hamburgers and the sights of New York. So <laughs> I can't wait to see the, the two of them just fall out and melt down. I mean, it, it was fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun, but now it's time to move to the, the dark chapter of their relationship. <laughs> no, that was a great story. I, I really enjoyed that. And I didn't know that, that, that Brother Orange should now, um, he, he's doing New York, huh? Wow. Exactly. Orange does the big apple. <clears throat> yeah, Orange and the apple. There you go. Um, mine, just to finish off with something, uh, you know, P- Hank Paulson has a new book out, right? Everyone knows that. I, I have not gotten re- around to reading it yet, but um, for a taste of it, I recommend you check out Gwyn Guilford's interview with Hank in in um, in Quartz. It's really good. Um, I, I the guy talks an awful lot of, of of good sober sense on China. He he's um, you know n- not a, a, a Shambolian collapsist. Um, but uh, he's he's not, you know, effusive and uh, either he's, he's, he's he seems extremely clear-eyed to me. Uh, is my read anyway, and he's uh, you know surrounded himself with some really smart folks like Evan Feigenbaum, who we talked about at the beginning of the show, and Damian Ma, who's been on the show a few times. So uh, I think they're doing very good work. Uh, their their work in environmental issues is very commendable. And then of course you know he has very in-depth personal knowledge of of the leadership here in China and. It's. It, I'm. I'm very much looking forward to the book. But for now, tantalize yourself with this Gwyn Guilford interview with Paulson in Quartz, and that's a wrap, boys. Uh, Trey McCarver, <laughs> thank you very much for coming in. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. And Simon, it's great to hear from you, man. Yeah, likewise. Great to be on the show. Thank you. You're you're, you're going to be on again. I mean, we're gonna. I'm going to come down to Shanghai and get you on there in person, so we don't have the the staticky breaky uppy thing from from Skype to haunt us. Jeremy, man. Um, this is working out, huh? I'm really happy to hear that we finally figured it is out this. It's working out with a lot of static, but yeah. we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. The technology. Can get. Um, so thanks, folks, for listening, and we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>